would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. We're continuing our series titled Resolve, sort of playing on our inclination toward New Year's resolutions in the new year, hoping that spiritual resolutions will be among those most firmly held and enthusiastically followed through the 2020 year. We've talked over the past few weeks about the study, the reading, the memorization of God's Word, and valuable part of our drawing near to God through the disciplines. We talked about prayer. You cannot draw near to God but through the fellowship. We enjoy through the medium of prayer. Last week, you heard about evangelism as a spiritual discipline. I don't know that it's really commonplace that we think about evangelism as a discipline, a spiritual discipline, a means of drawing near to God. But examine your own experience as a follower of Jesus. Are there times when you ever really feel closer to God than when you're communicating the truth of the gospel to someone else? It really is a way of pressing through those barren seasons in our journey with Jesus and drawing near. Sharing the gospel faithfully is a way of drawing near to God. This morning, I want to talk about the spiritual discipline of giving. Now, we're all aware of, of giving as a discipline in and of itself, but I'm not certain that we think of discipline in the context of drawing, of, of giving in the context of drawing near to God, but it, it can, and indeed it should, uh, operate that way. Not only should we be givers, but we should be giving worshipfully. The Bible says that one day our deeds will be evaluated. And what is done outside of a spirit of worship will be wood, hay, and stubble. It will be burned up in the day of judgment. That is, it's of no use. It's of no benefit to us whatsoever. But what we do in spirit and in truth, what we do worshipfully, will be shown to be of more value than even precious metals, silver, and gold. We want not only to give, but to give worshipfully. To give as a means of drawing near to God. I hope that we'll find encouragement in doing so from our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there, I would invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 1, Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. For I know your eagerness, and I brag about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I sent the brothers so our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so you would be prepared just as I said. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be embarrassed in that situation. Therefore I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver." And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he scattered, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. 
Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service. And they will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Would you now bless the reading and the preaching of your powerful, living, undying, ever fruitful word of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. To be perfectly honest, giving is about the only subject anymore that makes this preacher nervous. Now there's an anxiety that comes with preaching. It's always there. Anytime it's not, that's when we should really be concerned. But there's something about conversations in the pulpit about giving that make me antsy. Because the world would have us pictured as though that was our primary interest as churches. That, that, that we really care a lot about those sorts of things. And I don't get that. I could talk you through privately how nonsensical that really is. How foolish that is. But I always want to be careful to guard against doing anything that can create that impression. Paul was very wise with this in his own personal ministry. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been looking at Paul's ministry and how he handled financial issues, matters of giving. And there are times in Paul's ministry when he says, I didn't ask for anything monetarily or financially from a group of people or even a church because I felt as though that would be an obstacle to them. And then there were times where churches were perhaps more advanced or more mature in their understanding of the gospel, and he may have pressed them a little further so that he would be able to do ministry not only in that context, but in others as well. But I, I hope this morning that you'll guard yourself against allowing that a, a worldly outlook, a worldly perspective on giving would be an obstacle to you in understanding the, the power and the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it, if it takes in your heart and mind exempting yourself momentarily from, from the idea of, of giving for you to wrestle well with the truth of the gospel, I can live with that even for a short period of time. I, I, I say that as a caution to you. For, for the person who may come in and be somewhat skeptical, I don't want you to be beset in what you might understand otherwise of the gospel where our focus something otherwise this morning. And I want you to know that the reason that we talk about giving, the, the reason our financial lives are so much a part and parcel of our faith in Jesus, is because we have been the recipient of an indescribable gift in Jesus Christ. Our entire worldview has been shaped and changed by the power of the gospel. We see our giving away as no great sacrifice in comparison with the sacrifice that God has made for us. And so we freely give away, not to build our own kingdoms. The kingdom of, of God is not topped with a steeple. We, we give away to build the kingdom of Christ here on earth. 
We hold loosely what God has entrusted to us so that we might hold fast to the Son, Jesus Christ. So guard your heart this morning against this subject matter being a great hindrance to you in understanding and relishing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to note, church, the circumstances under which Paul writes. They, they, in my mind, they lend themselves to our circumstances here. Paul says in verse 1, concerning the ministry to the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I brag about you to the Macedonians. And here's what he says. The language may not lend itself to our really understanding at first glance what Paul's saying here. But he's saying, I've been bragging about you to the Macedonians, and here's what I say. Achaia has been prepared since last year. And the result of that is your zeal has stirred up most of them. So here's the situation. Paul is collecting a love offering. He's gathering this great offering to be delivered from the Gentile world, the Gentile church, to the Judean saints, the saints in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, because there's been a great famine in that area. And he wants to take this great gift from the Gentiles and deliver it to the Jews so that they'd have relief from the famine. People are starving to death. The Gentiles have an opportunity to be a great blessing to the Jewish church. And Paul is facilitating that by collecting the offering from these Gentile churches and delivering it over. He says, it's unnecessary that I write to you because you've already expressed your willingness to give, not just in a modest way, but with great generosity. And the generosity that you have committed to is so astounding that I've been bragging about you to the churches in Macedonia. Now, if you go to your Bible maps in the back, you have the Greek peninsula, and in the south of that is Achaia, and to the north of that is Macedonia. So Paul says, when I'm with your neighbors in the north, when I'm with Macedonians, I brag on the Achaian people, the people of Corinth, and their great generosity. It's not necessary that I write, you are liberal, generous givers. Praise be to God for your generosity. But then he helps them to make sure that they've got all their business in line before the chapter is over, so hold on for that. But this is basically the circumstances under which I have the privilege of coming to you this morning. I celebrate your generosity as a congregation with brother pastors when we visit together. And, and, and much like was the experience of the Achaean church and, and their generosity being expressed to the Macedonians, brother pastors are encouraged at your generosity to call upon their congregations for greater generosity. Here's what I mean. When I talk with brothers about your faithfulness with regards to Lottie Moon and your generosity in giving so that missionaries may go and serve to the uttermost parts of the world and do so uh, without the burden of fundraising and those sorts of things, they are themselves encouraged to go back and to call upon their churches to give with a greater degree of, of generosity so that the same can be carried through. We're, we're, we're really having a discussion under similar circumstances here this morning. Paul says, I know that you will gladly, generously, cheerfully give. But just in case, since I've bragged about you so much, Paul has sort of pigeonholed them with the bragging. He explains in verse 3, I sent the brothers so our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. And so you would be prepared just as I said. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be embarrassed in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. So a plan had been made in the past. They had committed to a certain degree of generosity. 
And Paul has been bragging about or celebrating that generosity to neighboring churches. Now he sends with our 2 Corinthians in hand, a team of brothers to deliver the letter and to make ready the offering they had previously committed to. Now, all of this is built up on the expectation that a plan has been made on the part of the Corinthian church with regards to giving. In other words, if I could translate this in a contemporary language, the Corinthian church had together budgeted what it is that they would give to the Jerusalem offering to this love offering for the Judean saints. And, and we can go a step further than that and note that the budgeting of the Corinthian church is entirely dependent upon the budgeting of the individual members of the Corinthian church. Now, everything that we're saying this morning is about exhorting you to give cheerfully. We'll talk in a moment about the benefits of giving cheerfully. But it's important that you note right here, and this is of critical importance, this is, we're not taking off in this direction, but this has to be said. If you're going to be a generous, cheerful giver, if you're going to give, as Paul says here, not as an extortion, but with a glad heart and open hands, it's going to be because you personally have taken charge over your financial life, that you're not just flying by the seat of your financial pants, that you have an actual budget that you know where your dollars and cents are going. Some of your faces are telling on you that you don't have such things, and that's a, that's a dangerous thing. And often, our generosity is cut short, or we're unaware that we have the ability to, to live generously in ways that exceed our current level of generosity because we don't know where our funds are going. I'm convinced that the vast majority of Americans, and for that matter, the vast majority of Christian people, have no control whatsoever over their financial lives. They simply do not know. It's one bad financial decision after the next, a constant digging of a hole further and further and further into debt until the monthly bills afford that there's no room whatsoever to give liberally or to give generously or to be very excited about the giving in the first place. Take, brothers and sisters, take charge over your financial lives. There, there, is, there is freedom in that. If, if you'll take the time to sit down at the beginning of the month and determine where those dollars and cents will go, Here's, here's something that might compel you to give. Where you have a little extra money that you're able to spend on fun stuff, you can actually do it and have fun while you do it because you know it's been allocated for that. Some of you go shopping, and you really want to be enthusiastic about shopping and buying things, and you may have a worldly outlook on that. I don't know. But you, 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 can't, you can't be excited about letting go because you really don't know in your heart if the money is there to let go of or not. Am I robbing from Peter to pay Paul in this particular instance? And the best you can do is just suppress common sense and just swipe away, swipe, swipe, swipe away and hope that somehow at the end of the month it all works itself out. Take charge over your financial lives. And for the vast majority of people, what you'll find is that you're wasting more money than you might have otherwise thought to give away generously. Paul appeals to them to follow through with the plan, the prearranged plan for the church and the prearranged plan, plan for individuals of the church itself. I want you to be able to give freely. And your ability to give freely will be dependent upon your planning of where your dollars and cents ultimately go. 
Now in verse 6, there's a bit of a transition. Paul seems to shift here to some motivating factors for giving. He seems to be highlighting here, in my estimation, some benefits or blessings of giving away what God has entrusted to us. Look at verse 6. Paul says, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. The first benefit of being a cheerful giver, as described in our text, is God's blessing. God blesses cheerful giving. And Paul uses a proverb here to communicate the way God does that, the principle by which God blesses generous, cheerful giving. The person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. It's a farming analogy. If you throw out a lot of seed, it's a reasonable expectation that there'll be a lot of growth. If you throw out a little seed, it's an unreasonable expectation to think that there'd be a lot of growth that would come forth from that. This is the principle. If you sow in abundance, it stands to reason. It is to be expected that you will reap abundantly. Now, what Paul does not say is that your reaping will always be in countable, material, visible, tangible ways. But the Bible does say that you will reap as you sow. Now, one of the challenges, in fact, much of the reason I get this feeling when it comes to talking about finances and giving is because of the culture created by the prosperity gospel which has taken this idea, this concept, and perverted it and made it a cheap counterfeit of what God has legitimately said. The prosperity gospel says to you that if you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly of worldly things, stacks of cash and fast cars and fancy houses. But what what the real gospel says What the principle itself actually teaches in its biblical context is that if you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly, often in ways that you will never see, understand, or appreciate this side of eternity. Now, we get fired up about the countable material ways that God blesses our generous giving. And if you've been a giver for any amount of time, you can reflect back and remember moments and times in your experience when God showed up and answered in an incredible way. I often tell the story of um, early in our ministry, Brandy and I were a little more than a year together. We had been uh, married for about two years. Trey was still an infant. She was in nursing school full time. I was pastoring a very small church and going to seminary full-time, and we were so broke, we were hungry. People think they know about being poor. Poor is not satellite TV and iPhones. Poor is I'm hungry, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's what poor looks like. And we were that broke. And we sat down, and we were working through some things financially, and we were always, God was always faithful to help us to maintain all of our obligations through that season of our life. But we sat down with the budget on that particular month, and we were $900 short of being where we needed to be. And it might as well have been $9 million because we didn't have 900 and we didn't have $9 million. It didn't matter. We didn't have it. And we were praying and wondering how it was. This, was. this was to be the first month in our married life when we would, have not, would not have been able to meet our monthly obligations. 
where we would have actually been derelict in responsibilities that we had committed ourselves to. And a, a, faithful, a faithful church member showed up and brought us a check for guess how much money? $900. Now again, could have been $9 million. But it was just a reminder to us to persist and to be faithful even when you can't see how the bottom line is going to work itself out. When the math doesn't work, be faithful to give as God has instructed and he provides for the needs of his people. Now, I'm not saying that you need to operate in that kind of way that you need to give to the point that you have a $900 shortfall in your monthly budget. You need to be more responsible on the front end, not put yourself in those kinds of situations. But there are moments and times in our journey when God shows up and he takes the fish and the loaves and he multiplies them in ways that confound the mind and he meets the need of his people. But there are countless other ways that God blesses us in response to cheerful, generous giving that you will never know or understand this side of heaven. You will never understand the full force the, the, the total fruit of Lottie Moon Christmas offering money until you stand before the King of Kings. One day you're going to stand there in a place where moth nor rust can destroy the treasure Jesus affords you. And he's going to take an account of the impact and the influence of every generous gift of your time, talent, or treasure. And it will be accredited to your account in ways that I don't completely understand. You'll be given a heap of crowns to lay at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it will matter far more than anything that could ever be reflected in your bank statement next month. It's crystal clear in the scripture, and we ought to hold fast to this teaching and not allow that we be robbed of this glory of celebrating in our hearts that the person who sows generously will also reap generously, acknowledging that that reaping doesn't always come in material ways that we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. The first benefit of giving cheerfully is the blessing of God on our life. There's a second thing in the following verse. Look at verse 7. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. The second benefit of, of giving cheerfully is God's love. Not that we're meriting the favor or the love of God in giving what we give, but there's a special delight that's brought to the heart of God at the cheerful generosity of his people. It really is a phenomenal thing to think about. And I think the reason this is true is because it's such a barometer of where our heart really is. The only way that you're going to give cheerfully, give generously, is out of a heart that has, has been conditioned by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we come to terms with the great gift that we have in Jesus, it changes our outlook. Our perspective is shaped by that. Our worldview is new in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold loosely what God has entrusted temporarily to us because we hold fast to Jesus, who is above all else. He is all ultimately that we need. We are glad to let this world pass us by in exchange for the glories and riches that await us in Christ Jesus. God is glad at the cheerful generosity of his people because it bespeaks, it tells of the condition of our heart touched by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be careful that as you give, you give cheerfully and you give gladly. 
I think we have some modern-day hindrances to giving cheerfully that uh, former generations haven't had to sort of wrestle with. You can now give online. You can now establish an online giving profile that allows that your giving happens on a recurring basis so it's not something that you have to remember or revisit often. And although that can be a very good way of ensuring that you follow after the plans that you've been made, which is a good thing, it can also be a way of giving becoming sort of mundane and monotonous in your life. Be careful that however it is that you give, whether it's traditionally through an offering plate at the conclusion of a service, or it's like Brother Wade usually on Monday morning, I forgot to do it the day before, so I take it into the office and have someone put it where it belongs, or online, or however, however it is that you do it, that there's a, in that moment that you're thinking consciously about what God stands to do with the gift entrusted to his care. And give in that moment, be glad-hearted and cheerful that God has afforded you the ability to give in such an incredible way and at what God might do through that small gift. God's blessing is a product of generous giving. God's love, the heart of God is cheered, delighted at the generosity of his people as it speaks to the condition of a heart touched deeply by the power of the gospel. I mean, who reasonably gives away their money except they have been touched by the gospel? It really shouldn't be a strange thing that the world would regard this in sort of a weird way. We're giving ourselves and our stuff away. Only people who have come to terms with the fact that Christ has given himself away given the glories of heaven over into the poverty of this world. Jesus says, the birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus embraced the poverty of this world in order that we might know the riches of his grace in glory. Only gospel people give their selves and their stuff away. There's a third thing here beginning in verse number 8 and running through verse number 11. God's grace is bestowed on those who give cheerfully and generously. That is, a special measure of grace is bestowed on those who give cheerfully and generously. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. In other words, when you give cheerfully and you give generously, God gives you every grace you need to see through the ministry he's called you to. God gives you every grace you need to do what he's called you to do. God gives you every grace you need to be who God has called you to be. Now again, these are not always measurable, not countable, not necessarily tangible, but they're ways that are experienced in a very real way. As you give cheerfully and you give generously, you have every resource you need to do the ministry, to do the work that God has called you to do. Not just that you would do it in a modest way or mediocre way, but that you would do it with excellence, he says. Look at verse 9. This verse is about the person who gives. We might read it in such a way as to think that it's about God himself, but this is about the person who gives. Verse 9 says, As it is written, he scattered, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. 
That is, the righteous man scattered. The righteous man gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. When you are willing to give, to scatter generously, to give to the poor, that is, to give to those who are perhaps underprivileged or in need or who have no ability to return the favor in the future for you. That's how you really evaluate good giving. When you give in a way that expects no return on supposed investment, when you freely give away what God has entrusted to you with no expectation of anything in return, it lends an enduring value. There's great grace added to your effort at giving cheerfully and generously. The generosity of the righteous man, the Bible says here, endures forever. Now the attention is turned to God's activity. In verse number 9, citing Psalm 102, the context again is the righteous man. And there's an ongoing influence that the righteous man's giving has as a result of God's grace. Now in verse 10, the focus is squarely on God. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God, again, gives everything that you need for your respective ministry as you give cheerfully and generously. All the seed you need, all the bread you need is provided by the hand of God himself. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Enriched in every way. God providing in his lavish grace for the needs of his, of his people. God, God does provide. And I hope that you'll guard yourself against, oh, that you'll guard yourself against being prevented from holding fast to the promises of the Scripture when it comes to giving by so many distortions of the truth of the Scripture. God is glad, God is glad to entrust to a generous, cheerful giver all that is needed to meet the needs brought before the generous and cheerful giver. God's blessing, God's love, and God's grace are all the product of cheerful giving, but there's a fourth thing beginning in verse number 12. God's praise is the product of cheerful, generous giving. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. Paul says, not only are you meeting the needs of the famished in Jerusalem, but you are generating the praise of God. People are praising God as a result of your generosity. Verse 13, they will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I think Paul is touching here. You've already got this Jewish and Gentile dynamic at work between the Jerusalem church and the Corinthian or the Gentile church in general. And there's some skepticism on the part of the Jewish church that these Gentile people could ever be anything but heathens in the first place. Now they're giving generously. And if they read 1 Corinthians, they're really going to be bumfuzzled that God has done anything in that church. This is a jacked up bunch of folks. But now their sincerity, their willingness to give generously to the needs of their brothers serves as an assurance for their brothers that they are genuine in their profession that Jesus is the Lord of their life. 
They, have, they may have begun their race further behind the pack than most everyone else. They may have challenges and issues that are very real and, and need to be addressed in very real ways. But their willingness to let go of what God has entrusted to them serves as an assurance for their brothers and sisters that they really mean what they say and say what they mean when they say that Christ is Lord and King of our life. When they get this gift in Jerusalem, Paul says, they're going to really be astonished and encouraged that you might really be Christian people after all. Because so many times the way we manage our finances, it really speaks. It's a barometer, a gauge of where our heart is with respect to the gospel of Christ. He continues in verse 13, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service, they'll celebrate in verse 14, the Bible says, They will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. When they get the gift in Jerusalem, they're not going to say, Praise the Corinthian church. They're going to say, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's an act of worship when we give. There's one way of generating praise. It's an act of worship when it's received. It generates praise on the receiving end. And in the case of the Corinthian church, there are those in Macedonia who themselves have praised God for the generosity of their brothers just a little ways to the south. There's really a lot of interesting back and forth that's happening in our passage. The impact of this offering is considerable. In fact, this offering... The encouragement to give to this offering, the reception of this offering, and the deliverance of this offering are, are a major monumental part of the New Testament. Paul speaks of this offering in a number of letters. The book of Romans is, is written in the context of Paul collecting and delivering this offering. Paul, Paul makes a 2,000-mile detour to collect and deliver this offering when he might have otherwise been engaged in frontier missions. He explains to the Roman church that he does what he does in order to build unity and togetherness between Jew and Gentile churches in the first century. Togetherness in the gospel is a critical issue if he's to be successful in taking the gospel to Spain. If it's to press in to Western Europe, it's going to be the, the byproduct of the unity and the generosity of the church. This is a critical component part of what God is doing in the history of the early church throughout the course of the New Testament. A reminder to us of the critical importance of our giving. Paul's willingness to make this 2,000-mile detour in the throes of frontier missions reminds us of the, of the critical importance of unity within the church. It's a reminder that racial reconciliation in today's terminology, Jew and Gentile being brought together, was a concern for the gospel, for gospel people from the outset of the church's birth. Paul is concerned that these people groups, that ethnicities be brought together for gospel advancement. And it certainly reveals to us the critical importance of our generosity, our ability and our willingness to meet the needs of those around us who have needs and to see that the gospel sound forth in great power. I, I, I want you to be careful. You have a responsibility that goes even beyond your giving itself. When, when, you, when you give, you have obligation not just to give generously, cheerfully, but to ensure that you're giving in a direction, in a way that makes an eternal difference. 
and, and this is, oh, this is, really, this is really important. Like as a church, we need to always be careful. We need to always be careful that, that the motivation for our giving is that we might decrease and he might increase. And it is so easy, it is so easy that that become inverted and that we give in order that we might increase and inadvertently along the way Jesus decreases in our midst. It's so easy for churches to become so enamored with the building of our kingdom that we completely lose touch with what it means to expand his kingdom. And, and you may be struggling right now with sort of differentiating between those two, and that's what makes this so dangerous. Because it can feel so right building our kingdom when in the end it is so wrong and such an affront to the kingdom of Christ. As a congregation, we must always, always, always be careful that we're able to draw direct lines between our gifts and our giving and kingdom expansion. And I don't mean our kingdom, I mean his kingdom. The concern of the gift is gospel advancement. And the concern of our gifts ought also to be gospel advancement. Notice how Paul ends chapter, five, chapter 9 and verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's as though Paul pauses here at the end of this exhortation on giving and reminds himself and the Corinthian church of the great gift that we have received through God's Son, Jesus Christ. You should always guard yourself against what I call, and I think this is the common term, the debtor's ethic when it comes to giving or service. We, we don't give as a means of repaying God for what he has done for us. You, you can't do that. It's silly. It's absurd to think that you could. If we were to amass all of our wealth as a congregation, in fact, if we were to amass the wealth of the nations and bring it and lay it at the feet of our king, it couldn't make the down payment on the grace that has been afforded us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't give our time, we don't give of our talents, and we don't give of our treasure as a means of repaying God for what he's done for us. It's absurd to ever imagine that we could even hope or think to do so. We give because he's all we need. He is, he's enough. And we recognize that this stuff is fleeting. Yes, entrusted to us for this short period of time. We are to be good stewards over what God has entrusted to us. Leveraging this stuff for kingdom advancement in the here and now. Providing for the needs of our family, etc. Maintaining all of the responsibilities and obligations that we so clearly have in the scripture. But we recognize that all of this stuff is quickly fading away. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It is a wisp of smoke on a windy day. It will soon be gone. We give to lay up treasure in a place where moth nor rust can destroy. To hear from our Savior, well done, thy good and faithful servant. To live a life in the here and now that lasts longer than the meager 80 years that we've been afforded walking here on this cruel world to do something with ourselves and our stuff that makes a difference 8,000 years from now. There's no repaying what God has done for us in Jesus. 
No man can do that. No men can do that. Nine worlds couldn't do that. God has loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus that he would abandon the riches of glory to walk in the poverty of this world. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He embraced the crown of thorns and the cross of crucifixion in order that we might have his riches in glory. The sufferings, the pains, the anguishes of the present age aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. All all of that has been afforded you by faith in Jesus. Today, if you will believe on Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for the hope of eternal life, the riches of heaven are yours. The inheritance of the Son is, we are partakers in the Son's inheritance by faith in Jesus. You see why the prosperity gospel is so damnable? It's such a cheap counterfeit. Who, who in this world would trade a car and cash and housing for what awaits us in glory in Christ Jesus?